He asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus refused to answer. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law stood there shouting their accusations. Then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Finally, they put a royal royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. Then Pilate called together the leading priests and the other religious leaders along with the people, and he announced his verdict. You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I have examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence and find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty, so I will have him flogged and then I will release him. Then a mighty roar rose from the crowd and with one voice they shouted, kill him and release Barabbas to us. Barabbas was in prison for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder. Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded. As they had requested, he released Barabbas, the man in prison for insurrection and murder, but he turned Jesus over to them to do as they wished. As they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside. The soldiers seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large crowd trailed behind, including many grief-stricken women. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the Skull, they nailed him to the cross, and the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing, and the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched, and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he really is, if he really is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers mocked him, too, by offering him drink, a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed him. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself, and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes. This man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. By this time, it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone, and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust you, I entrust with my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. When the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what had happened, he worshiped God and said, Surely this man was innocent. Luke chapter 23, verses 1, 6, 8 through 9, 11, 13 through 21, and 24 through 47. All right. Well, good morning. If you are new with us, my name is Tim Deal. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you with us on this beautiful morning. Uh, I I did want to kind of a brief, not directly related to my sermon, but who knows, maybe. Um, A a number of people have have come up to me this morning to congratulate me. Uh, You may have heard there was a, a sports victory that happened earlier in the week. Uh, last week, where uh, a certain team beat another team in the NCAA National Final, 
Uh, that is the reason why I am wearing a Carolina blue shirt, though I don't like this shirt. It's, uh, I, Andrew was um, kind of picking on me this morning for having my shirt tucked in. I said, well, it's too long. I can't have it untucked. But I had to wear it because it's Carolina blue, and I just had to. So if you have no idea what any of that meant, I'm sorry. We'll move on. Um, so we are in the middle of a series that we're calling Revolutionary Jesus that we're continuing this week. And in this series... We've been looking at the Gospel of Luke, the, the third biography of Jesus that we come to in the beginning of the New Testament. And we're looking at what about Jesus' life, his teachings, his death, and his resurrection is revolutionary for us. Uh, this morning, we're looking at the crucifixion. And we kind of started off the morning with two contrasting narratives about how evil can be dealt with. The first was the movie clip we saw from the 2009 film The Watchmen. Uh, Again, I I had one teenager respond to me, Ethan, as he was prepping the film clip this morning. He was like, oh, I need to watch this movie. And I said, no, you don't. And you need to tell your parents that I said that. So if your teenager says they saw this and they're like, oh, Pastor Ted, I would encourage you to watch it first and make sure. But uh, So it's kind of a rough film because it's a dark film. It's kind of, it's the anti-superhero movie in a lot of ways. But it deals with some pretty deep questions. And one of them you see here as Osmandius, who I probably pronounced that wrong, but I don't know if it matters. Uh, he's this super intelligent guy. And this, this happens in an alternate universe where the, the superpowers in the world are on the brink of World War III. The Soviet Union and the, and the United States are... The United States has gone to DEFCON 1. They're kind of preparing themselves for the next step, which would be nuclear war. And Ozymandias, the, the smartest guy in the world, comes up with this elaborate and horrific scheme to rescue humanity. And the way that he does it is to kill millions of people in what would look like almost like a terrorist attack, uh, an attack by one of these other superheroes, in order to bring these enemies together to save billions. And you see the beginning of that plan in this clip, the detonation of the, of the bombs that kill millions. And it works. His plan to sacrifice a few million innocent people works to alleviate the, the animosity, the anger, to bring enemies together. He sacrifices innocent people for the sake of saving the world. Luke gives us a counter-narrative to that. He gives us a different story. And that's why we read such a lengthy scripture today. And there's much more in Luke's narrative leading up to the cross. I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible, to to look through that, to to read Luke's, uh, it's like chapter 22 through 24, kind of Luke's uh, following Jesus' journey to the cross. If you don't have a Bible, we have extra Bibles in the back on the countertop. would encourage you to grab one of those and take it home as our gift to you. Uh, but Luke kind of takes us through a number of different trials. We don't even cover all of them this morning. Uh, we cover the last few. But Jesus goes through a series of trials. The first that we didn't look at was one that happened with the religious leaders, where they, um, they condemned him as a heretic, as someone claiming himself to be God. And so they bring him before Pilate, and that's kind of where we pick up this morning. But we get this kind of, this 
I guess, 30,000 foot view, kind of looking in at the series of trials that Jesus goes through. And it's just, it's a fascinating, fascinating story. The whole idea of trials interests me. It probably interests a lot of people. That's why series like Law and Order have been so popular, right? My my wife loves Law and Order. Um, I I, kind of like it less than her, but it's kind of a fascinating, uh, it's a fascinating show, right? Because you see both uh, the people who are, they're, they're investigating, they're trying to find all the evidence to build the case, and then you see the prosecutors and the defense trying the case. And typically in the trial, what you see is, is kind of standard. Now, they'll, they'll twist it once in a while to keep you guessing, but usually it's standard. It's, it's the person who's guilty who is claiming their innocence, and it's the prosecution trying to prove with all the evidence that they're, in fact, guilty. That's, that's kind of the point. That's what the narrative tension is. But in the, the story for Jesus, it's kind of flipped. As we look at character after character, as they interview Jesus, as they put Jesus on trial, the opposite happens. Rather than the guilty being shown to be guilty by those who are prosecuting him, those who are prosecuting him again and again declare that he's innocent. This is a real emphasis for Luke. We start out with Pilate. So Pilate is the Roman governor. He's the one who's in charge of keeping the peace. Uh, If you remember your eighth grade world uh, history class, you might remember the phrase Pax Romana, this idea that Rome... Rome prided themselves in establishing a time of peace, the peace of Rome. That's what Pax Romana is Latin for the peace of Rome. And it was this idea that Rome had brought peace, but they brought it with force. They enforced peace with violence. This is why the the cross was the perfect Roman instrument for for keeping the peace. Because if someone was going to lead an uprising, the way that you make sure that nobody gets that idea again is you torture them and shame them publicly. And you send a message, see, you don't want to do this. And that keeps the peace. And so Pilate is in charge of keeping the peace. And so all he wants to do is make sure that everybody stays calm, all of this just works itself out. But several times, again, I think it's like, when you read through the passage, we cut a little bit of it out for the sake of time, but if you read through the passage, I think it's like three different times, Pilate points out that Jesus is in fact innocent. And then you get Herod. The, the king of, of Galilee, where Jesus is from. And so they send Jesus to Herod. And, and originally, Jesus is kind of a curiosity to Herod. He thinks, you know, he's like waiting for the tricks, right? Like maybe Jesus will heal somebody. Maybe he'll say something really cool. Like this will be neat. And then Jesus doesn't play his game. He just stays silent. And so that kind of ticks him off. And so instead, they mock him, right? They dress him up like a king. They make fun of him. And they send him home. But then later, Pilate interprets that as, well, Herod didn't find any fault in him either. That's why he sent him back. So two rulers who note Jesus' innocence. And then, of course, there's the criminal who's dying next to Jesus on the cross, who says clearly that Jesus has done nothing wrong. And then finally, the centurion, who would have been this Roman leader over a hundred troops, They were historically known to be people of of strong character, who were trustworthy. And he's the last person sitting there at the feet of Jesus as he dies. And the last word we hear is surely he was innocent. Luke is really concerned as he weaves this narrative together to draw out the fact that again and again throughout all of these trials, Jesus was declared innocent by person after person. 
But it's not as though Jesus is kind of some hapless, unfortunate soul who tripped into this and now can't get out of it. He's kind of caught up in the cogs of the Roman political machine. Actually, quite the opposite. In Luke's story, we see Jesus choosing into this road. That that this move toward the cross is not in opposition to what Jesus is doing. It's actually, it is what Jesus is doing. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how, if, if you were with us, we talked about how in, uh, in Luke, Jesus says, uh, or I'm sorry, Luke says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. That there was this purposeful, intentional move on Jesus' part to go toward Jerusalem, where this all would ultimately happen. That, that Luke is foreshadowing for us this move towards the cross. Today is traditionally observed as Palm Sunday. Millions of Christians all over the world, probably over a billion Christians around the world, recognize this as the day when Jesus makes his kind of triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But, of course, the the paradox is he rides triumphantly into the city where he would ultimately meet his death. That this is the moment his crucifixion, his death, this is the moment he's been intentionally moving toward. Earlier in Luke, in chapter 22, when Jesus is initially arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says this to the the religious leaders as they take him captive. He says, this is your moment, the time when the power of darkness reigns. In the crucifixion, we see darkness exposed at, at its most kind of naked, raw form. We see deception, humiliation, degradation, violence poured out on an innocent person. All that evil can muster is brought on to one who is innocent. There are few things that obviate evil like violence poured out on an innocent person. Unfortunately, we saw that in full view this week. My guess is that all of you at some level heard about the the chemical weapons attack on um, Syrian people that killed 86, I believe, um, around 26 were children. And of course, while losing any life is tragic, and 86 lives is, is just horrific, the idea that a good chunk of them were children is what resonated with most people. Nikki Haley, the the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., when she made her plea to the U.N. to act, she didn't do it by talking about the, you know, the the young mother who was killed in the chemical weapons attack or the the grandfather. She did it by showing images of young children. One of her quotes was about how people were carrying people out of the, out of the scene, they're carrying them away dead, and she said explicitly, some of them still in diapers. The idea of children being killed in an attack like this strikes at the very core of how we as humans understand the way things ought to be. We look at that and we say, even if, even if we think there's lots of leeway on saying what is evil and what's not, we can all pretty much agree that that's evil. 
Why? Because children are innocent. And when this is taken out on children, evil is shown for what it is. There's no hiding it. There's no excuses made. There's no, nothing anyone can say that makes us go, oh, oh okay, okay, that makes sense. That's why. It's just what it is. When the innocent are killed, evil is laid bare. And Luke makes it clear that Jesus is innocent. That Jesus moves towards the cross as an innocent person. But not as someone who is helpless, caught up in the currents of of the universe, kind of moving towards this unhappy end, but someone who strategically chooses into this. That this is his plan. That the cross is how God takes care of the darkness once and for all. As the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, the cross is the means by which the powers of darkness are defeated so that God's kingdom, his newly minted sovereign rule over the world, can at last begin. This is accomplished because the innocent Jesus is dying the death of the guilty. Jesus, by taking upon himself the weight of Israel's sins and thereby of the world's sins, dies under the accumulated force of evil so that now at last the kingdom can come in its fullness. See, when you read the the narrative, Pilate, Herod, the religious leaders, they thought that the cross really exposed Jesus' inability to be who he said he was. The fact that he didn't have, that his followers deserted him, that he didn't actually have an army to come to his defense, all of this pointed to the fact that Jesus wasn't actually king that he really didn't have the power to do what he said he was. This is why Herod mocked him. Because clearly, he's not a king. And that's what's so paradoxical about the cross. Because the opposite is true in the eyes of Jesus and those who wrote about his life. That actually in the cross is where Jesus became king. That rather than Jesus being exposed... The darkness itself, evil, death, sin was exposed and taken care of in Jesus' death. A a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, Jesus facing the devil and his temptations in the wilderness. If you're not familiar with that, it's towards the beginning of the book of Luke, where the devil actually shows up as Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without eating, and and he's tempting him. And what is he tempting him about? He's tempting him to to grab at glory, to, to protect himself, because no one else is going to protect him, and to, uh, to grab at power. These are kind of the three basic temptations that the devil presents to him. And at the cross, we see essentially Jesus choosing the opposite direction on all of these. Rather than grabbing at power, he lays it down. Rather than choosing to grab at glory and honor and position, He lays it down. He refuses the glory and in fact accepts humiliation. And rather than protecting himself and crying out for God to protect him, he sacrifices himself. And in so doing, he displays the futility of darkness, evil, and death. In his death on the cross, Jesus has the audacity to claim his position as king. The cross is 
the throne on which Jesus is crowned king. It is the entrance to his kingdom. It is the way in which Jesus takes on violence and evil and hatred and humiliation and fear and sin and death. He takes it on by sacrificing himself, rendering it powerless and impotent. And this is really important for us to wrap our heads around because for those of us who are following Jesus, the call to follow Jesus is the call to worship the one who defeats darkness and death and sin by sacrificing himself for the sake of us all. And who we worship determines who we become. What God is like as we worship God shapes who we become as people, what kind of lives that we live. See, Pilate, as a Roman, worshipped gods that were violent in nature. I mean, Mars was kind of one of the, the primary Roman deities. And who was Mars? Mars was the god of war. The religious rulers that condemned Jesus to death, they worshipped a god who fundamentally fought against Israel's enemies, who crushed the enemies of Israel for the sake of Israel's thriving. This understanding of who God was shaped the way that they interacted with everyone. And we see that play out in their interactions with Jesus. But the God revealed in Jesus isn't one who crushes his enemies. He's one who lays his life down for them, who sacrifices himself so that all can have life, so that all those who come to him can experience life. And this is important because who you worship is who you become. If God is one who is fundamentally angry at you, then your life will probably be marked by fear and guilt. If God is distant and impersonal, then your life will probably be one that's highly pragmatic, doing what works rather than what's good. If God is one who crushes those who oppose him, then you're more likely to be inclined to forcefully act against those who oppose you. Who you understand God to be shapes the way that you interact with anybody, with everyone. Now, you might be sitting there going, well, then it's good I don't believe in God because then I can just do what is logically good. But even if you would say you don't believe in God, I love what David Foster Wallace, the the author, noted. He says, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you think about worship as orienting your life around something, anything, well, we all have something that we're living for, something that's that, some story that we're a part of. Now, even if you're someone who'd say, I don't know if I believe in God, you're living for something. And what you're living for is shaping who you are and what you value and how you interact with the people around you. So whether that's you're living with your, for your family or you're living for personal success or you're living for wealth or whatever it might be, that driving force shapes you in a fundamental way. We all worship something. Again, to quote N.T. Wright, You become like what you worship. When you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone, 
you begin to take on something of the character of the object of your worship. So when we come to Jesus on the cross and we worship the God that Jesus reveals, the one who handles evil, violence, sin, opposition by giving himself in love. When we worship that God, then we become people who reflect the nature of that God. We become people who are more likely to eschew self-promotion for the sake of promoting others, particularly, particularly those who are at risk or who are in need. We see the resources that we've been given as gifts, as tools to be used for the blessing of all people. We don't attach our value to titles or positions, but recognize that our identity is found in being loved by the creator of all things. And so we're motivated to live in love towards others, even if they're below us. And we're more likely to be people who practice forgiveness and love even towards those who have done horrible things against us. This is what makes the cross so revolutionary. It flips on its head our preconceived ideas of how we find life, of how we become fulfilled, complete, whole human beings. This is how darkness is defeated in us and in the world. In the innocent one who sacrifices himself for the guilty and reveals that God is a God of self-giving love, who, as Paul says, one of the New Testament writers later says, made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. This is the God that we come to worship in Jesus. And this, this is the radical revolutionary message of the cross. That in the cross, the darkness is defeated. Not in some kind of radical military victory, but in this act of self-sacrifice and love that Jesus gives on the cross. Now, one of the challenges of this is that we don't, we don't experience darkness being defeated immediately as fully as we would often like. Um, you know, I, I talked about the, the Syrian uh, chemical attack earlier. This morning I awoke to uh, notifications on my phone about two churches in Egypt being bombed as they gathered to worship for Palm Sunday. We could go on and on about lots of different dark, horrific things that are happening in the world. And this is one of the things I really appreciate. If you've been around for a little bit, you know that I quote N.T. Wright a lot. And one of the things I appreciate about how he frames this is this tension between the now and the not yet. That there are things that God is beginning now, but with Jesus, that go on now that are not fully complete until one day when God comes and restores all things the way they ought to be, when there's a new heaven and a new earth. And we kind of see this tension in the criminal on the cross, uh, the one who, who hangs beside Jesus and says, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. That even as he kind of looks at Jesus naked, suffering, dying, same position as he is, same kind of like their level, level playing field. 
He's able to see the reality of this new kingdom that Jesus is bringing. Somehow, remarkably. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responds, of course, today you will be with me in paradise. And even in that, we see this tension between the now and the not yet. So, so kind of a, just briefly, this idea of paradise, what's that all about, right? So, so in the biblical picture of what God is doing is that one day God will bring it, like recreate a new heaven and a new earth. That it's not that this earth kind of goes away and we all float somewhere, but it's that God reestablishes the world as it ought to be. That this is kind of the biblical narrative. This is where things are going. But in the meantime, there's this, this ancient idea of paradise. And the, the biblical texts don't fully kind of play out what exactly that is. But there's very clearly this understanding where Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Later, the, the New Testament writer, again, Paul, says, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. This idea that in the meantime, as those who pass on await the final day when God restores all things, there's this, for those who, who, who would put their trust in Christ, there's this place in which that there's bliss and joy. It's a waiting place for the one day that God will restore all things. And so there's this now but not yet reality that we see even in this, this criminal as he asks to go into the kingdom with Jesus. And so, as we experience life, as we, as we look at the cross this morning, we do it in an, a now-but-not-yet kind of way. We recognize that even in our own lives, while there is a lot of darkness out there, that in our own lives, we're wrestling with our own darkness. Challenges that we face, maybe personal issues that we just can't get on top of, that we long to see taken care of, that we long to see made right. And the hope that we have, like the criminal who hung next to Jesus, is that in the cross, God has taken care of those things. And that as we follow in the way of Jesus, God is at work in in bringing victory in our lives even when it comes slowly even when we can't yet see it that we hope that the cross is bringing victory for us now and will ultimately forever this this is our hope this is why we come to such a a gruesome scene as the cross and we celebrate because it's in the cross that God offers us life and hope and victory as we follow Jesus together. And so, you know, we talk about worship, and there are lots of different ways that one can choose to worship. And there are lots of ways we do choose to worship every day. But one of the the functions of a community like this is creating spaces for us to worship together. And so that's why, that's why we do things like, like singing on Sunday mornings when you come in, even if you're, you're not a real singing kind of person. Um, there's something really helpful about putting some of these beliefs to song in a way that allows us to remember, that allows us to connect more than just our heads. There's ways that we do that as we, as we come, and maybe you hear some teaching, you hear the Bible reading, as you 
get in community groups and, and talk about things together. But we also want to create some, some other spaces for us to be able to do that, particularly around this season. And so that's why I just want to encourage you, if, if you're someone who would really appreciate spending some more time reflecting on this, to, to join us for our Good Friday service this coming Friday. This is new for us. We've never done this before. Um, but there's a group of people here who have really found um, this has been a great way for them to connect with God and with one another over the course of the Lenten season, where they've been gathering on Wednesday nights for Waiting for the Light, and they're going to kind of wrap up that time together this Friday for our um, Good Friday service. So I would encourage you to come out. It'll be a lot different. It's not going to be like, you know, band and me preaching. I, I actually have nothing to do with it, um, which might be a big plus for you. Uh, so you can just come and enjoy it. It'll still be casual, uh, but it'll be a, a very reflective time. So I encourage you to consider that. There will not be child care, but your children are welcome to participate with you. Um, so that's one. And then the second is communion. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you probably noticed that we've done communion every week since we've moved into the Lenten season. That's unusual for us. We don't do that typically, but we have done it here as we've been looking toward the cross and anticipating Jesus' death. And we think this is really important because this is kind of a practical, tangible way that Jesus has given us to remember. Now, a friend came up to me uh, not long ago, and, and we were having a great conversation where he's like, is it really just remembering? Is it just kind of in our heads that we're just like, oh, I, I remember that time Jesus died? Is that really what we're doing? Because that seems kind of like anticlimactic. Um, and I was like, well, that's a good question. And the more I thought about it, Jesus does say, do this in remembrance of me. But it's a little bit more significant than simply like you have a memory of a thing that happened, right? As we were talking, the thing that it made me think of is, is wedding rings. So uh, not every married person has a wedding ring. You don't have to have a wedding ring uh, to be married. But many people who are married do choose to wear wedding rings as a reminder. But not as a reminder of like, oh, that's right. I got married I'm so glad I had that. Like, if that's your experience, there's probably some other things that we, you could work on. Um, but it's not like that, right? Like, the wedding ring is actually, it's a little bit more of a symbol of a bigger thing that you're a part of. And so when you and your spouse are at odds and you touch your wedding band, perhaps you remember that one day not so long ago or maybe long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, you said for better or for worse, or some variation on that theme. And so it challenges you to dig in your heels and work a little harder. Or maybe when you're out and you catch that person's eye and she or he catches yours and they're attractive and you touch your wedding band and you remember, yeah, that's not my story. I've committed to someone. The wedding band causes us to remember in a way that relocates us, reminds us of what story we're a part of, that we're part of something bigger. And this is what communion does for us. Jesus gives it to us as an invitation to remember the story that we're a part of. That as people who are following the crucified one, the one who inaugurates his kingdom through his death, that we're invited to follow after him, to remember as we come and, and take some bread and some juice, that we are a part of that story, that we are following the one who defeats evil and sin and death 
in darkness by exposing it, by sacrificing himself on the cross. and invites us to find life as we take up our crosses and follow him. So we're going to do that together this morning. Uh, we would typically take some time doing Q&A, but um, we're, we're going to kind of skip over that and transition into our, our time of communion. Um, and I want to read, as, as we get ready for it, I, I want to read kind of a, a bit from a poem <clears throat> that I really have appreciated. But just some instructions. So uh, when I get done reading, I'm going to pray. And when I'm done praying, we'll just get up together. There'll be some, some music playing. Uh, Claire, uh, Claire Carpenter is going to sing for us. And uh, we're going to kind of get up, head out the, to the back of the room, kind of come around the back, come up the side, come to the front here. You'll take some bread and some juice, go back to your seat. And whenever you're ready, you can take it. And if you're uncomfortable with this, if, if you just feel uncomfortable taking part, by all means, feel free to hang out in your seat and enjoy the music, and we'll be transitioning in a second. But I want to read this poem from Lucy Shaw. <clears throat> it's called Two Stanzas, the Eucharist, and I'm just going to read a portion from it. Shaw writes, But truly, reminders are God's business. He will see to it, flashing his hinder parts now and then past our cut in the rock, His metaphors are many, among them the provided feast by which our teeth and tongue and throats hint to our hearts of God's body, giving us the why of incarnation, the how of remembrance. Father, as we together take communion this morning, we remember that in Jesus' death, the kingdom is inaugurated. That in his humiliating, degrading, shameful death on the cross, it's not, it's not he who's exposed, but it's darkness and evil and death and sin that's exposed for its impotence, for its inability to conquer love, to conquer the Creator. So we pray that we would be inspired as we reflect this morning on the sacrificial love of Christ. To worship. To worship you as the one revealed in Jesus. And to become people whose lives reflect that same self-giving love, even in the face of darkness. We ask that in Jesus' name.